0: Hey y'all, and welcome to Least of These. I'm your host, Leah D, and this is my last week off. Thankfully, Kim Toller from A Million Other Choices is here again with the case of one of Canada's youngest serial killers. As is the case with most serial killers, you may have heard the name Cody Lejbikoff. But what about the names of the women he victimized? Who were they? And what are their stories? Let's join Kim and learn about the lives and tragic murders of Jill Stachenko, Cynthia Mays, Natasha Montgomery, and Lauren Leslie. Hello and welcome to A Million Other Choices, I am your host, Kim. I'm covering a serial killer today, and I don't normally do that, but not because I'm not interested in serial killers, they they really fascinate me and they, they also disgust me. But most serial killers are actually really well covered and usually in really long form investigative pieces that are done quite well. And frankly, I just don't want to dedicate that much of my time to the mind of a serial killer. But today's cases are actually not covered that much, at least not east of the Rocky Mountains. And the victims are important to name and to talk about. And there is a lot to cover, so let's dive in. This is the murders of Jill Stachenko, Cynthia Mays, Natasha Montgomery, and Lauren Leslie. On October 26, 2009, in a gravel pit just off the Otway Road near Foothills Boulevard in the town of Prince George, B.C., a hiker passing through the area discovered the decomposing body of a woman partially buried in a gravel pit. It wasn't well concealed, and almost appeared as if whoever had put her there had originally planned on burying her, but gave up when realizing it was too much work. The woman's remains, based on the level of decomposition, appeared to have been there for about seven to ten days. The woman had been the mother of six children, four boys and two girls, ranging in ages from two to fourteen, all now left behind. Her name was Jill Stachenko, and she had last been seen by her friend and sometimes customer Jim Giller the weekend before Thanksgiving. Now that's Canadian Thanksgiving, not American, so around October 9th, Jill was a happy and bubbly soul that had once dreamed of becoming a famous singer. Jim had met Jill when she was working the corner of Queensland and Jupiter. People who knew Jill knew that she had a drug problem which she had tried numerous times to kick and had entered a drug treatment center only days before she disappeared. But relapse was often a problem for her. To make money for her addiction, she often worked with escort agencies or on the streets. Jim had spotted her one night and turned his car around to meet with her. He paid her price and got what he initially wanted— But something about Jill struck a nerve with Jim, and the next time he called her, it was because he wanted to help her clean herself up. Jim had a cabin near a lake about a 40-minute drive out of the city, so after that time when she needed a break or felt ready to give sobriety a try, she would call Jim and he would let her stay at his place. He said, quote, she would pass out and she'd be there for 18 to 20 hours. I would go to work and come back and find her head exactly on the same pillow as she had been when I left there. She would wake up after a time, and we would be very hungry, so we would cook something together and go down to the lake for a swim. After that, I would leave her alone in the sunroom with her books, and the books she was reading were all self-help books, end quote. But after three or four days, she would get the itch and make her way back into Prince George, and, according to Jim, get back into that cycle again. Jim helped her sometimes with money, and although he wanted a relationship with her, she had a boyfriend that kept a pretty tight rope on her. Lenny Kenny, who had just gotten out of jail for assaulting her, but she was hoping to mend the relationship. Jim wasn't impressed, but felt that she could use a friend. At his last sighting of Jill, Jim met up with her at the Victoria Towers on 20th Avenue, and she hopped into his SUV, and they headed to the 7-Eleven on 20th. On the way, he invited her to Turkey dinner at his sister's house, but she had said no. She then hugged Jim, got out of the truck, lit a cigarette, and threw her purse over her shoulder, heading off. Jill was reported missing by a family member on october twenty second just four days before she was discovered. Posters of the pretty blonde were plastered to telephone poles and on the doors of convenience stores in the area. Jill was thirty-five years old about her disappearance and discovery. Constable Gary Goodwin. Who recognized Jill from around the area said, quote, Due to her lifestyle, the family and friends decided it was too long for her to be missing. She's a very pretty girl. She wasn't really hard. She was nice to talk to. I think this is an isolated case because of her high risk lifestyle. It's very tragic. End quote. I don't know about you, but I take exception to the term isolated incidents when it comes to individuals killed in marginalized or high risk communities. They may not be killed by the same person but they are certainly not isolated incidents. The definition of isolated is having minimal contact or little in common with others, single or exceptional, which we all know is not the case with marginalized communities, particularly with individuals in the sex trade. Anyways, it's what they called it, but I don't agree. The autopsy found two lacerations caused by a blow that broke the skin on her head, one at her right ear and one at the back of her head that created a fracture to her skull. There were also two bruises on her forehead and three major contusions to her brain. This all suggested that she was hit with significant force, enough to knock her unconscious, if not kill her. Bruises on her forearms suggested she was trying to ward off her attacker. It was also noted that there wasn't much blood found in her body, and that could mean she bled to death, but animal activity in the area couldn't be ruled out. Bruising and a tear to her anal area were also found indicating that she had been sexually assaulted and not the result of normal consensual sexual activity. There was also a tampon found in her vagina, and as most of us ladies know, you tend to take those out if you're consenting to sex. The tox report showed that she had taken cocaine within a few hours of her death. Other than some animal activity, her body was pretty well preserved. Jim would have been a likely and pretty good suspect in Jill's murder having been the last one to have seen her, but spoiler alert, he didn't do it. Almost exactly a year later, on October 8, 2010, two police officers patrolling in the Elsie Gunn Park, which is a pine-needled cushioned trailway through three and a half kilometers of forest lining the Fraser River, where hikers and bikers alike are warned not to go off pathways as the bluffs are very dangerous and unstable, discovered another body of a woman propped up against a tree with her pants and underwear pulled down to her ankles. She was badly decomposed, and the top part of her body was skeletonized, and her head was no longer attached to the top of her spine. Fingerprints were able to identify her as 35-year-old Cynthia Mays, who had been reported missing by her sister Judy. Cynthia had been last seen on September 10th after visiting a friend's apartment. Cynthia and her siblings, including her sister Judy, were originally from Blueberry River First Nation in Peace County in northern B.C., She had been brought up in poverty and lived in and out of foster care for most of her life. Being the youngest of her siblings, they nicknamed her Cinderella. As a result of her biological mom's alcoholism, she suffered from the effects of fetal alcohol syndrome. As a young teen, Cynthia was offered drugs while babysitting for a cousin, and the fetal alcohol syndrome made her predisposed to addiction. She later moved to Edmonton with a boyfriend who liked to beat her up, and she became pregnant but she had recently moved to Fort St. James alone to get help for her addiction and prepare for motherhood. She did attend treatment in Vancouver and in Prince George, but unfortunately her baby was taken from her and put into foster care. Her sister said that, quote, The last day she was seen, she was faxing in all of her paperwork to start the process of getting this child back into her care, end quote. Cynthia's autopsy found that her cheekbones and lower jaw were fractured, as were both sides of her skull. There was a large hole in her right shoulder blade from a penetrating wound like a knife and a smaller knife wound in one of her vertebrae. Her right collarbone was also broken. Injuries consistent with someone stomping her. It was also discovered that her voice box had been pierced with a knife or some kind of sharp-edged instrument. Her cause of death was a combination of blunt force trauma and penetrating wounds. Toxicology showed that she had used cocaine as well as marijuana and an antidepressant before her death, but the drugs had not contributed to her death. Similar to Jill, she also had defensive wounds on her forearms. But again, it was classified as an isolated incident. Despite sex workers, according to a study conducted in San Francisco that reported that 82% had been physically assaulted, 83% had been threatened with a weapon, and 68% had been raped while working so I disagree with the verbiage. A little over a month later, on the evening of Saturday, November 27, 2010, around 9.45, a rookie RCMP constable named Aaron Keller spotted a GMC Sierra truck speeding out from an abandoned logging road and onto Highway 27 near Vanderhoof. Besides the speeding, Aaron's spidey senses went up that something was a bit off about that. Why was he speeding out when he was tr- like he was trying to get ahead of something when there was little to no traffic? So he followed for a bit and then put on his lights, but the driver didn't really slow down. When he finally did get him to stop, right away he knew something wasn't right with this guy. It's November, like almost December in Prince George, and this guy is wearing black and white plaid shorts with a Carhartt sweater and grey vans. An odd choice of dress for any day, but particularly this time of night and year. It didn't help him look less suspicious that his shorts had what looked to Aaron like blood spattered on them and smears of it on his left cheek and thighs. There was also a large pool of blood he could see on the driver's side floor mat. Keller ordered him out of the car and called another constable, Kenwalpritz Sedue, to come as backup. Something is funky with this guy. Keller also noticed an open beer can and when patting him down discovered a hunting knife in his pocket which also looked a wee bit bloody. By this time, the second constable had arrived, and the man said that his name was Cody Legimbekov, and he was 20 years old. While he was being patted down and his license plate ran, Sidhu gave the vehicle a more thorough search, finding a bloody pipe wrench and a child's backpack on the front passenger seat. At least they thought it was a child's. It was one of those stuffy-like ones shaped like a monkey. Unless, of course, the strapping six foot two, two hundred and twenty pound man liked pink, fluffy backpacks. But they kind of initially ignored the backpack and suspected that he was a poacher and illegally hunting in the area. A run of his ID in the system didn't come back with any concerning criminal background or warrants, so they called a conservation officer to come and join and check the situation out. And Cameron Hill arrived around eleven pm. By this point, Cody wasn't under arrest, but had been read his rights. Cody told Cameron that him and his friend Thomas had been out deer hunting and saw a deer along the side of the road. So Thomas got out and shot it. Now, it's illegal to hunt from a vehicle and within a certain distance of a roadway, so he was admitting to a crime. The deer had been hit and was lugged into the back of the truck and they drove to the logging road to dump it. But two questions. Why wouldn't you keep the deer if you were out hunting? Which I would think is the point of deer hunting. And where's this Thomas character? He didn't really have an answer for that and just kind of shrugged. He also couldn't say why, if they didn't want the deer after killing it, why they didn't just leave it where it was. Like, why take the effort to lug it and then dump it? Okay, so who hit the deer with the pipe wrench? It was obviously used to hit something that bled. Well, he says it turns out that they took turns. Why? He said, because, quote, I'm a redneck, that's what we do for fun. Really? Whacking a deer over the head is fun, and all rednecks do this? I don't think so. Cameron didn't buy it either. So he tells him, look, you're under arrest for illegal poaching, and we need to track down your friend, and we also need to recover the deer carcass. And when we run the blood on your wrench and face, it's going to be deer blood, right? And Cody says, of course. While all this discussion is going on, Aaron and Ken Walpert gave the truck a good search. And in addition to the bloody deer clubbing instruments and the fluffy backpack, found a hospital card. It's one of those blue cards that you used to get at least here if you were ever admitted to the hospital for any reason. Uh, it just has your health care number on it and your name and a black and white van's checkered wallet both showing the name of someone named Lauren Leslie less ominous but still noteworthy was a brillo pad two crack pipes and a cell phone that probably didn't belong to Cody since he had been patted down and a cell phone was retrieved from his pocket so Cody was packed into sedu's police cruiser and Cameron who being a conservation officer had some tracking skills headed down the logging road to search for the dead deer Uh, This was just after midnight at this time. He found the tracks from Cody's truck and some footprints in the snow, so he hopped out of his vehicle and followed the tracks, expecting to come up on a dead deer with his head battered in. Instead, he came across the horror of a young girl laying splayed in the snow, partially concealed in some brush off the gravel pit. The body was face down under an evergreen tree, and there were drag marks showing that she had been pulled there in an attempt to keep someone from finding it. Like Cynthia, her pants and underwear had been rolled down to her ankles. Fresh blood was seeping into the snow from her head, which was, to the only way I can really describe it, completely smashed to a pulp. She also had two gaping stab wounds to the neck. She was far beyond any help, and Cameron radioed back to Sadu and Aaron. When the radio call came in from a somewhat panicked Cameron... Sadu turned to Cody in the back of his cruiser and told him that his charge had just been upgraded to murder, to which Cody responded rather indignantly, I did not murder anyone. When do I get to call my dad? Because I didn't do this. I seen it, yes, but I want to leave. I don't know why I'm fucking here. Then he asked for a cigarette from his truck. Sadu asked him, so do you want to call your lawyer or not? And Cody said, I want to talk to my dad because I did not do this. To drive down the road and find this, it's fucked up. Cody then looked at Aaron, who was hovering by Sidhu's vehicle. I didn't kill the girl. And Aaron, losing his cool a bit, said, Who the fuck did? Cody then changed his initial story and said that he had come across the dead girl's body, obviously, after she had committed suicide. Seriously? Suicide? Her head was smashed to bits. I don't think even the most distraught person does that to themselves. The body of the young woman wasn't actually a woman at all, but later identified as 15-year-old Lauren Leslie. Lauren was born January 5, 1995, to her mom Donna Marie and Dad Doug. She had two brothers, Ricky and Robert, and a sister named Megan. She was a popular student with many friends despite a disability that had left her legally blind. She preferred to spend her time making friends online, never really feeling secure around others in person. But there had really been no reason for her insecurity as she was a pretty girl. But teenagers, they never know their own beauty. Her family lived next to Highway 16, which is otherwise known as the Highway of Tears. According to one reporting, a trace of the hospital card came up that she had recently ran away from the hospital where she had been for mental health concerns, and a missing persons report had been made in Saskatchewan. But that doesn't really explain why she was in Prince George, because other reporting says that she was actually living with her dad in Prince George and attending school there. So I'm going to go with that, because some stuff that comes after that lines up more with that explanation. Whether a missing persons report was put on Lauren or not is not really known, because she was found and killed within a very short time span. An autopsy of Lauren's remains was done in Camelopes. The autopsy revealed that there was a line of trauma across the right side of her face, which was surmised to be from something like a belt, like being whipped in the face at least four times. She also had numerous skull fractures, which required either notable or bordering on tremendous force. A metal ring on her hand had been compressed on both sides, breaking the finger, uh, there was also some healed-over scratch marks on her wrist. None of them, when, even when they had been fresh, would have been life-threatening. There were no indications that Lauren had had attempted suicide. So, let's see what this Cody guy's malfunction is. Cody Allen Legobacoff was born on January 21, 1990, into what has been described as a loving family in Fort St. James. Most of his family members are not named in any of the news or court documents, for obvious reasons, but his grandfather, Roy Goodwin, talked to Mike Hager of the Vancouver Sun and said of Cody, quote, He had a good upbringing. Everything was perfect. I hunted with him. I fished with him. We did everything, and he was a perfectly normal child. He was no different than you or I when we were younger. That Cody that I know, that I took fishing and hunting, wouldn't do any of that. Everyone liked him. There wasn't a person that had a bad thing to say about him. Nobody. Roy says he last saw Cody at Thanksgiving, and again that's Canadian Thanksgiving, um, dinner with the family. Quote, he drove up from Prince George, had dinner, and then went back. He had a girlfriend with him. He introduced her to me. I talked to her, and that was it. End quote. Just your regular old baby-faced country boy. He was a popular student at Fort St. James High School, played hockey, skied, and snowboarded. He had recently gotten his mechanic's apprenticeship and was working at a local Ford dealership and dating a young lady that he had met at work. At the time of his arrest, he was taking some classes at the College of New Caledonia to try and become a teacher. In August 2009, he had moved to Prince George and gotten an apartment with some friends that he knew from Fort St. James. He was taken to the RCMP headquarters to be questioned, and his story changed again. Now he says that he did know Lauren that they had met on an online social media platform called Nexopia, that they had been chatting and agreed to meet up that night. His explanation for her death is rather appalling. He said that they had met up and had consensual sex, not possible with a 15-year-old, and then went for a nice romantic drive in the woods, and then for no reason she just went psycho on him and started hitting herself in the face with the pipe wrench. She was trying to kill herself, So like the nice guy he is, he finished her off as a favor with a couple of more whacks. So while Cody is giving his ridiculous story about what a good humanitarian he is, police go and talk to his roommates. His roommates, well, they described him a little bit differently than Grandpa did. Cody had gotten the help of his female friends from back home in Fort St. James, Sadie Burgard, Jasmine Lukenuk, and Jana Ladle to load up his truck and they all moved to a rented house back in August 2009 in the 1400 block of Laird Drive. Cody took the basement suite. The three young women all described their place as a bit of a party house. And yes, sometimes they had parties where there was booze and weed, but nothing too crazy. But one time Jana had walked into the downstairs bathroom thinking it was unoccupied and found Cody snorting cocaine while seated on the closed toilet. She told the other roommates and they tried to do a mini intervention, but he wasn't really interested in the just say no speech. And after that, he became a lot more secretive and some kind of shady characters were around more after that. According to Jasmine, quote, they were not the people I would hang out with. He also often brought girls home overnight that he had met on this next opiate which garnered him some teasing from him as not just a man whore but one with what they considered low standards they also found out that he was a bit of a messy sod when confronted about his pig pen lifestyle he would tell them that he had no intention of changing so to just live with it which they were kind of forced to do because they really needed his rent money but what really piqued the investigator's interest was Jana telling them that she had come home after visiting her family that Thanksgiving, again, Canadian Thanksgiving, not American, and went downstairs to see what Cody was up to. He was lying on his couch watching TV and there was a large melon-sized blood stain on the end of the couch and another one on the carpet. She asked Cody, like, what the hell, or some words to that effect, and he said, quote, He was high and fell asleep on the couch and had a bleeding nose. Now, she really didn't have any authority to tell him to clean up the mess from the couch, but she did tell him to clean up the mess on the carpet, which over the next few days he kind of did somewhat haphazardly before just kind of giving up on it. Sadie told the police that she noticed at some point, and she couldn't really remember exactly when, that she saw a small pickaxe resting next to his bed. And when she asked him, you know, why do you have an axe by your bed? He said, well, it's scary downstairs. You try sleeping down here alone. And she didn't really give it much thought because they had actually recently spotted some footprints in the snow around the backyard shed. So perhaps a search of Cody's little den of hell is in order. And they found a few things. Actually, more than a few things. Further connecting him to Lauren was some messages between the two on Nexopia beginning on November 1st. Cody went under the name of One Country Boy. The messages began with Cody contacting Lauren to meet up. Lauren was fifteen and he was twenty at the time. Block him, Lauren, block him. But unfortunately she didn't block him. And on November 27th, just after 6 p.m., Lauren messaged Cody. Cody was with his girlfriend at the time, and so his girlfriend left at 6.30, so he messaged her back to meet up and told her not to tell anyone about him. And Lauren said, fine, but she didn't want to do anything sexual and this was at 8.22 p.m. Why are red flags so hard for young women to see? Cody then purchased some beer and met her outside the W.M. McLeod Elementary School. Lauren was wise enough to text her friend Charity that night between 8.30 and 8.35, telling her that she was out driving with Cody. They arrived at the logging road where Lauren would meet her fate around 9 p.m., The beer that he purchased, they had actually discussed in their messages that he would get from the cold beer and wine store and matched the open can found in his truck that night. Police ran DNA on a whole whack of items from his bloody shorts to items found in his truck and from his apartment, and they discovered some oddities. A black sweater and white sock found in his truck that they had originally assumed belonged to Lauren with three spots of blood around the neck came back to to match DNA from Cynthia Mays. Cynthia's DNA was also found on the pickaxe beside his bed. And that nosebleed bullshit story about the blood on his couch and carpet, that DNA came back to Jill Stachenko. And of course, anal and vaginal swabs from the two women and one girl came back to Cody. But there is more. Not all of the blood on Cody's shorts that night belonged to Lauren. A couple of splotches and another 30 samples taken from his bedsheets mattress and carpet, and kitchen linoleum, as well as the handle of the axe, belonged to a sometimes sex worker who had been reported missing in August, Natasha Montgomery, who was only 23, and the mother of a four-year-old boy and three-year-old girl. Her kids were living with their dad as Natasha had struggled with drugs that had only recently been released a few weeks before from the Prince George Regional Correction Center, and she had been staying at a friend's house when she disappeared. Her ex-partner and children's father, Brian Goodwin, had known Natasha since she was 12, and they had lived together in Quenelle. She moved out when the drugs got bad, but they stayed in contact, calling the kids every other night. And according to Brian, quote, she loved them more than anything in the world. A collection of photographs of her little peanuts was found in the bedroom of where she'd been staying when she disappeared. She was last seen on August 31st when her friend Robert dropped her off at the Fast Gas on 20th and Queensway. Cody was left to rot in jail for a bit, and his trial for four counts of first-degree murder started in late August of 2014, and like many an arrogant and evil serial killer before him, he took the stand in his own defense. When it came to Lauren's murder, he stuck to the story that after they had consensual sex, which again isn't a thing seeing he was 20 and she was 15. She got out of the truck and ran around to the front of the truck and started smashing herself in the head with a hammer. And although he did initially hit her to put her out of her misery, he also might have hit her maybe once or twice in anger. In one point during his cross-examination, he had these chilling words to say. You told Constable Keller at first that you were out grouse hunting. Recall that? Yeah, those first the stories about me hunting in those were complete bullshit. The only reason I said that was to try and you know get out of the situation as as any way I could, and it was the first thing that popped into my mind. Not to mention the fact that I got pulled over by a cop and had all the items in the vehicle. I had drug paraphernalia. I had open alcohol, uh, so I wasn't really ready to tell him what just transpired. As for the murders of Jill, Natasha, and Cynthia, he said that he was there but he didn't kill them. You see, each of them owed a drug debt to these dealers that he knew, which he would only name as X, Y, and Z. They killed them, and he was just there as a witness and to clean up the mess and dispose of the bodies. But he wasn't going to give up any actual names because, you know, he didn't want to be known as a rat in prison. Any sex that was had was, of course, all consensual. On September 10th, a jury of his peers, although I can't say that I really like that term when it comes to this nut butter, found him guilty on all four counts. The court heard a total of 13 victim impact statements negating the perception that marginalized people and sex workers are throwaway people. Natasha's mom, Luann, who has never been able to recover her daughter's remains, says that she just can't let things go and just sits on Google Earth trying to find Natasha. It just consumes me. That one just really gets me in the feels. One of Jill's daughters, who was 15 at the time, says that she cries herself to sleep and is dealing with depression and anxiety. Quote, I barely talk to anybody. I barely communicate. Donna Leslie, Lauren's mom, says she's pretty much lost her mind since her daughter's murder. The best years of my life were when I was raising my young kids. I had a supportive husband so I could stay home with them. I have wonderful memories of that time. Losing Lauren has basically destroyed them. I am shattered, heartbroken, and will never be the same. Lauren's dad, Doug, said, "All I have left is a deep sadness that never ends, that never leaves me." Outside the courtroom, Robert Donovan, Natasha's grandfather, I actually had to leave. I couldn't take it. When they were playing the testimony about how he murdered her, about all that he'd done to her, I just broke down. I couldn't take it. I thought I was a big tough guy, but but big tough guys fall apart too. Luann told reporters, "It's not over for me. I still don't have Natasha back, and I want to remind the public." To keep an eye out for her remains. Judy May, Cynthia May's sister, has become a warrior for awareness of the missing, murdered Indigenous women and girls movement. This verdict is bittersweet. All we wanted in this system was justice. Even though my sister is gone and we will never get her back, through this, we will have a sense of justice that it was first degree murder, and we are really happy with that. Um, She also reminded all of the people that were there that. Even though two of his victims were sex trade workers, it doesn't matter. Quote, they weren't just a drug addict and they weren't just a sex trade worker. They were loved. They're missed. End quote. And during the sentencing, when asked by the judge if he had anything to say, Cody stood and said, I pretty much covered everything I was going to say when I testified. Cody has never told anyone where, where Natasha's body is. In 2019, he was transferred from his max security to a medium security out in Ontario. Grand Chief Stuart Phillip of the Union of B.C. Indian Chiefs said, quote, it's absolutely shocking that they would reduce his security measures to medium security. It's certainly a slap in the face to the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls movement. In a written response, Corrections Services Canada said that all offenders are thoroughly evaluated and placed in facilities that can assure their security and meet their program needs. Rehabilitative efforts leading to a gradual and controlled release have proven to be a better way of protecting the public. Luckily, so far, all of Cody's appeals have been denied. But I find it very chilling that Corrections Canada is already preparing for his gradual release back into society. And that was the murders of Jill Stachenko, Cynthia Mays, Natasha Montgomery, and Lauren Leslie. Lessons from today's story. Let's see. Not all rednecks do this kind of stuff, despite what Cody thinks. Sex trade workers and people struggling with addiction are people and are loved by many. And please watch your kids like hawks when they're on social media. I will be back again next week. Please do your rate, review, subscribe thing. And if you want some extra content and access to some older episodes, you can sign up for exclusive content for $5 a month. And as always, thank you so much for listening.